Hello guys, and welcome back to another installment of Galley Stories, Stories of the Bering Sea and Beyond. I am your host, Mark Kaler, and today we've got Captain Joe Morris with us. How you doing, Joe? So far, so good. Okay, you've listened to one or two of these at any rate, and uh, we'll just go right in. And uh, where were you born? Montgomery, Alabama in 1960, about four years before the bus boycott. Racially charged times my folks got us out got me out of there by the age of two or three my dad at the time i think was a pharmaceutical salesman so he moved across the country a bit traveling salesman no he actually it was better than that he didn't talk about it much because he's a federal marine biologist when he retired but um it was something he had going at the time and then uh then we went to colorado by the time i was eight and he was into fishing game and then with the feds and Moved around almost like the military. He kept getting promoted. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What brought you to water? Probably my dad. Yeah. I graduated high school, and I was 17. I graduated high school in uh, 78, and about three months out, I, I tell this story to the crew. He was kind of wondering what I was going to do. He threatened to charge me rent, and I kind of chuckled. I couldn't wait to get out of the house. And, and I'd had jobs with him. Learn how to do body work out of a book on my car and smoking dope, and he didn't want that to continue. So he had known uh, the guy who ran Fishing Game at the time, who knew Bill Howell of Trigon Seafood. And somehow word got around, he walked up and said, well, you want to go on a crab boat? The man says you can make pretty good money. And I didn't pay much attention. I said, well, how much can I make? And <clears throat> I said, well, it sounds like five or 6,000 for a couple months. And I just shrugged my shoulder and said, sure, and went back to what I was doing. And that was it. <laughs> That's how I got on the water. What boat? The Billiken. 1978. Back then, King Crab started like September 10th, I think. I actually flew out and stayed with a fish and game biologist at the time, waiting for the boat to come in. And I interviewed at the airport with Steve Mantell and Bill Howell on their way to Nome. They fished King Crab in Nome for two years. 78, that boat was still pretty new at that point. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Chuck wasn't running it, but I don't think he was too far removed from running it. Yeah, the Bountiful was probably in the makings or certainly on his mind. You know, I don't think it was quite being built then, but yeah. Tell us about it. Which part? <laughs> the first part, you, you you flap there, you get on the, the billiken. Oh, yeah, I hated it. Oh, my God. Some guy talked me into being the freezer rat because you had a little more freedom. And you, he said, we're walking to the bar, which wasn't common that the boat would even be in Dutch. It was offloading. And I was a new guy, and this guy made it up on deck. And he said, you know, you should ask, tell him you want to be in the freezer because if you do your job quick enough, you can go help on deck for 20 minutes at a time. And that's how they can see how you work and you get on deck. So I took the freezer and it was, I finally got over it. it. It was hard. It was, the quicker I worked to do that, the more the Steve Mantell would say, well, let's go break another plate and get ahead on tomorrow. I'm like, hell with that. I want to go up top. Anyway, it did lead to me getting on deck quicker. But the reason I stuck it out is this is 78 and I see these guys making $70,000 on deck a year and I just knew. Yeah, I need to make 70000 so I stayed and got on deck. How'd you work your way up there? Just like what I said, I finally got on deck. I got to know the deckhands, and we, we hit it off. There are 18 processors, and that's where you chose your deck from. 
and they would put you up there for $100 a day to do bait, and you either washed out or you made it. And I never had to do bait, though. I actually jumped to a cruise share right away because I got burned and almost died and got medevaced, but that's a different story. Well, let's hear that story. Well, I was working my way up there, and then uh, I was on deck, and um, I used to butcher. And I remember one day Vic Scheibert said, hey, would you show the butcher how to clean the cooker? And I said, no. I, tongue in cheek, you know, like, yeah, I will, but just bust the chops. Yeah. said, no. And I'd done it plenty of times. And I went over to show him how to drain this huge cooker. Well, it had a six-inch pipe for a drain at the bottom with three wing nuts. So you would undo all but the top one and keep your toe on it and then stand up so as it flapped open you didn't get sprayed in the face with boiling water and I slipped and my foot went down and got stuck in the deck while the six inch flow of boiling water is just hitting my leg probably the count of six or ten because I finally had to push down further to tip my heel up I kept pulling but I had to dive in farther anyway the burn got uh, all infected I had a hundred five fever for four days out in the uh, Lucians at ADAC, the guys were icing me down, naked in bed. I couldn't even drink water without puking. And they finally got the Coast Guard to uh, to come over. The Coast Guard was dealing with a fire somewhere. And Dwayne Clark was a skipper, and he got pretty irate with them and just said, get over here and get this guy. And, and uh, Where was the burns at? My leg. The, these boils were like the size of a cup and a half at one point of just plasma underneath. And then when they drained and popped because of the weight, I went to help them in processing to do something. I infected it then. So then I had an infection that they just couldn't keep the fever down. And so Bill Hall used to joke later that we thought we were going to send you home in a pine box. And the skipper happened to say to Chuck, hey, he's all hard and he's our next on deck. And he just helped, boom. Next year, next season, I was getting three and a half percent. Yeah. Instead of doing the hundred dollar a day thing. How long did you do that for? Which part? The on deck. Now you're on deck. Uh, it was pretty. You know, back then people don't really believe it, probably. But if you lived in Anchorage like I did, and the boat did six weeks a year in shipyard, shipyard, you're still away from home. So I was on the boat eleven months on year one, ten months on year two, and eleven months on my third year. And then at the third year is when the King Crab collapsed from 120 million, 110 million pound quotas to 70. And we didn't believe it, but it did. And then that was our rotation. You didn't have somebody come take your place. They'd never heard of that. You just, if you're a deckhand, you're doing it. You didn't rotate out for two months or anything. So it was your spot. So when the King Crab dropped, we were all like, thank God, let's get out of here. And we weren't too happy with the skipper anyway, so. Um, did it for three years. Okay. Mm -hmm. Where'd you go from there? I think my folks talked me into going to college. I think they actually bribed me. Gave me five grand to buy, put towards a new car and uh, go to college for engineering. I was always good at math. I, I got free tuition because my mom was a uh, ten-year nurse there, uh, nursing instructor. So college was free. I was under twenty-five. Insurance. They just kind of talked me into doing that. Mm -hmm. But after about a year, I couldn't stand not having money, and I went back to work. It was interesting. You, yeah, you were making more than $5,000 when you were crabbing. Yeah, well, when crabbing dove like that, I mean, the quotas went to hell. They blamed it on CP predation, like we were taking small crab and killing them. Another theory was the cod were running 
really thick and killing them. And there was one other theory bouncing around, but there are hardly any CPs. But boy, they want to blame us that because we took some undersized crab by a quarter inch that killed this huge fishery. Right. Anyway, it, it went in the tank, and you only got a buck a pound, buck and a quarter back then. But we'd do a million and a half pounds, and you didn't pay fuel or bait, and your crew share was a little lower, and it was all uh, W-2, so they were paying half your Social Security. And you, a lot of fishermen, their Corvettes were sale in March, because they were on 1099, now they got to pay their taxes. But back then, with Trident and Chuck, you took taxes out, and you never had that trouble. So, it was a good gig. They uh, they they don't take taxes out now currently for for the fleet right I mean you no but if you're on a boat with more it used to be if you're on a boat with more than ten people which is a CP we had twenty six people I think on the Billiken if you back then the rule is more than ten people they were required to W two it it might still be that way actually it might be that yeah. it depends what Bobby Bobby would know what they're doing on the Bountiful but then later when I came back that got you in the 401 I was here when they started doing 401 at Trident and all of a sudden we were eligible for that and not that we knew what it was but we knew we should do Just it throwing money in there yeah, <laughs> yeah. so it came came back after college and went to what boat well, I was gone for three or four years I, I, I went and uh, leased a seiner and I seen Cook Inlet for a while for 10 years I actually started out leasing and decided I needed to buy a boat so then I came and looked for it. Trident. Vic was at the time running the Bountiful. He had a great king crab. And I happened to just walk the dock, literally, but it wasn't that far removed from Trident. And um, Vic said, well, get your license. We need a license and sail with us on the Bountiful. That's 1,600-ton mates. So I did that and came back as mate on the Bountiful after four years. It was few years seining. Uh, college went by the wayside, but I seined from, the seining overlaps with some of this. Where were you seining at? Lower Cook Inlet. Yeah. Per, pretty small fishery, but a uh, lot of territory. Only 80 of us there. There are only 80 permits. What was a sockeye run? And you hit sockeye, but if the pinks were hitting, you had silvers across in Kamashak, you could kind of, mainly you were going after, back then a sockeye was worth more than a barrel of oil, so is that right? Oh yeah, barrel oil was fourteen dollars, and sockeye was paying two fifty a six pound fish. Now, it, now barrels oils at what eighty, and it just got sockeye's about a buck. Yeah. You know? Well, in the peak, right after the oil spill, there were cash buyers paying seventy cents a pound for pinks in Homer, and the price for reds was three thirty-five. The year of the oil spill. How did you decide to? I mean, college, you you got right into a a saner. You just. Have you had you seen before? Yeah, a, a few times. My dad actually bought a saner and a permit to, in his summertime, was going to do it. He was a bigwig federal marine biologist, but he decided he wanted to go seining right out of, I was still in high school. And after a few years, he just thought, this is too much work. I, I don't want to do <coughs> it. So I bought the permit from him. Okay. And then leased his boat. And then, uh. Decided I didn't want to lease my dad's boat anymore. So your dad was already into it. He tried it. He tried it. He, like I say, he retired as a federal marine biologist with NIMPS. He ran the Anchorage office. The only boss he had was one of them in the state of Alaska. So he, his career was a pretty high up in the GS level with NIMPS. Mm-hmm. But in the summer, he thought we'd do this and move to Homer for yes. three years. And then he's like, it's too much. So you gained that experience then and took the boat. 
sane for a while. Any any cool experiences there? Or? You're you're probably still young at that point. Oh, I was a screaming kid. My hair pulled on fire, and if we missed thirty reds, I was yeah, I was out of control. One lesson I really learned. He one time just he came out for two weeks. Hey, why don't I come with you for two weeks? He kind of missed it, and I'm the boat wasn't quite right. It wasn't adequate for what I was trying to do with it. I remember cutting the skip man loose and screaming at the top of my lungs and he went the wrong way in the fish. And my dad afterwards said, you know, you scare me when you do that. Did you see the look in the kid's eyes? He doesn't know what's going on. You're scaring him. If you keep that up, I'm flying home. And I don't think I've screamed at a deckhand since then. And not that I listened to my dad that much, but it clicked because I had a screamer on the crab or on the billiken. We all didn't like him. Or he got in our business too much on the loud hailer. And so, since that day, I've always remembered that. And, and uh, yeah, it got better. It, Saning's tough. It's a tough road. You you got to learn where every rock and log is in your area, because you'll lose a set. And you, after ten years, you know every rock and log, and then you leave. That knowledge is worthless, because those rocks and logs are there. But if you go to Prince William, <laughs> you got to do it again. <laughs> Not there anymore. Yeah. The lead line hangs up. There goes all the fish. You yeah. know, sometimes it wasn't a big fishery. If you made 150k, you're doing good. But you know, to watch five thousand dollars worth of fish disappear because you hit a snag you didn't remember was there, it could drive you nuts. So then, after that, walking the dock with Trident when I came back. When you get is that is that when you came back? Well, four years. Like I say, the seining overlapped. Seining is its own animal. But, sure. But as I summer months and yeah, as I was leasing from my dad and having trouble being in business with him, I decided I either I hadn't bought a house yet. Either get a house or a boat. Well, the boat needed to come first, and so I went down to uh, just come back crabbing for a year, get like <laughs> 50, 80k, and go get the boat. And then uh, <coughs> that's when Vic and the company decided to try doing OPs. I came in for the second year of that, and that blossomed. So I actually ended up doing both for a while. And the saning is when I spent time with my wife because she was part of the crew. <laughs> so if she wanted to be with me, she had to go fishing because the rest of the time I was grabbing. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was interesting. I thought I was going to get some seed money for a saner. Instead, uh, the spill happened. Things got pretty nasty, but crab took off. And with a license, that was the place to be. The Bountiful. They gave me the billiken eventually. Um you know, an interesting thing. I have a few neat things that happen with Trident, but never had much to do with Chuck, and I never got... I'm not a guy to keep track of people and socialize. I just... And uh, I remember he, this deal came up, and he, he got... One of the few times he called me in his office, this is early on, he said, all right, we, you know, we, we, we know you're ready. You can, we want you to take the billiken, but um, the guy who runs the Bountiful generally takes off in February, and we need you to be willing to be relief skipper on the Bountiful. And I'm just all grins because the way Opie's worked then, the first six weeks were just easy. You're just shooting fish in a barrel. And then after six weeks, things tend to slow down so that maybe the first six weeks, you're filling your boat like the Billiken within four days and you might be waiting a little bit to offload. But the Bountiful is losing out. He can only do 35,000 pounds a day. So you're ahead of the game, and then after six weeks, it's a CP's game because he can stay on the water till he's full, and I might have to go in because the crab are getting old. And that's about when that skipper wanted to take off. 
So it was perfect. I'm like, oh, <laughs> money, money, it's a money. perfect time to be on a CP. And yeah. I, I just grinned and go, yeah, that'd be fine, Chuck. <laughs> and so he had, he knew, he, we looked after the boats. So yeah. You were on there for how long? Well, the the Bountiful thing it overlapped with Vic ran the Bountiful, and then he was eager to get in the office. So then another captain had it. I was mate, relief captain. I never really ran the Bountiful. It wasn't my boat except when it went to Russia at the time. And again, this guy didn't want to go to Russia. He really liked his lake house, and <clears throat> he uh, he could make enough money. The rest of us couldn't. You know, his summers were important to him. The only time I was really a captain the longest on the Bountiful was its trip to Russia, which really turned out well. How'd that go? Really good. And that captain never looked at me the same again. <laughs> so why why did it go to Russia? I mean... Well, it was pretty new. This is like 92. So we were, in a, in a way, we were the fifth boat. One of the first five boats to ever go to Russia as an American boat. Not sold to Russia, joint partnership. Uh, the Diomedes did it for a couple of years, run by Doug Barber, who had a history with Trident. And then Jim Hilt at the time worked for MRCI, which was the catalyst to put the two together. Uh, a boat, which had to be Trident's, plus three others, and this Russian end with the contract and the quotas. And then Doug Barber opened his logs to us to help us out and said, this is where you'll go to do this crab or that crab. And so... Um, it was just, uh, it was a big chance, it was a big risk, but, you know, Trident took risks, Chuck took risks, and, uh... Was it any different, or just same, just, uh... uh it's hard to describe, yeah, it, uh, we, the uh, first time we set the gear, <laughs> it's a long time, ways over there, it's two weeks, I left Akatan, and you had to go, you know, to the, through, uh, around the bottom end of Kamchatka. They told you you had to go the, between the third and fourth island, island of Kurils, which has a Russian base. You were only allowed to travel between there, and then you went up in the Siva Kosk for another four days to get to the ground that we were going to fish. And uh, I set the gear and had bait. And I remember the first two picks or so, I, you know, Vic's really, like, he's managing the crabbers at the time. He's like, how's it going? What? what? Everybody's on pins and needles. All we did and all we spent, the commitment we made to be over there. I said, boy, I'm trying to be honest with him. I said, I don't know. I just can't get more than 15, 20 to a pot so far. But, you know, we just started. And I was like, even myself going, what the heck? But you had triggers in all the pots, which is what they use for keep cod in a pot. And Doug had said, these blue crab are so nimble. Put triggers in all your gear or they'll crawl out. So if you have triggers, you're keeping them all the cod. So by the third set we we're just chopping the heck out of the cod for hanging bait all oh, all of a sudden we're getting 40s 50s 60s this is working just fine at that number and as it went on we're getting 80s all the time 90s using cod the cod helped you needed the tide ran so hard and it's so rocky we had these boulders come up twice the size of a basketball and with coral i still have coral bright pink coral we got your fish you had to fish low, uh, deeper than 200 meters so you're deep, and uh, I think when the tide ran, they hunkered down in the rocks, but you needed the hanging bait to hold, and when the tide let up, they, they knew it was there, but they couldn't get, and this is my theory, they couldn't get to the pot, because it's, it's running. fighting to get there, yeah. The tide's only going two ways, though. It's not like the Bering Sea. We're so close to the top, it's two ways for the tide, which helped. You could lay your bags to pick them really good, and I think as long as you got the soak, and by uh, the time we were supposed to come home, it was going so well, the 
discussed staying over there and resupplying us. And I remember him saying, well, no one thought it would go like this. I said, I did. If you don't remember, I stuffed the entire um, lounge with fiber. Doug had said, well, load the boat like this. I'm going to, I'm going to Priest Lake, but here's how you should load it. And I'd run the Bountiful for and I said, bullshit, we're... I'm taking an extra whole trip of fiber, fire has whatever, and stu literally stuffing this huge room full of fiber. I took extra salt, and I told him, why do you think we're still here? I took, the, and of course Vic's just worried about the overall thing. He didn't know that I had packed for this, and pretty soon they sent over resupply, and we stayed an extra three months, and the later we stayed, the hotter the fishing was getting. So you're just getting 80 and hundreds, and I discovered a new area. It's just... How long were you fishing at that point? I mean... We, is it, this is back in the days when you're when you're running your crew wild, right? Uh, just ragged. Yeah, except the Bountiful was always oh, yeah. eighteen Rotation. on six off. Yeah. So that that was a thing in the open access days. These other guys, you know, Opie's might go five months, and the other guys are wearing down. We're just like a rabbit. Everybody money eighteen and six. Hey, you're getting six hours off a day. That's, yeah. That's fantastic. You're sleeping. Yeah. Yeah. So you were just twenty four hours. So going who out. were you offloading to? In Russia? Yeah. That was, uh, you couldn't, anything. Their offloads are always different. Uh, the first one was a Russian freighter. Um, interesting. He had he had more chiefs than Indians. He had three, like, this is a ragtag thing. He had three chiefs, four, and the offload's going slow, but they're not going to handle the gear. The deckhands do that. And yet everybody's up on deck watching us. How come he's not helping? Oh, that's the chief. How come that's the chief? How come he's not electrician? How come he's an electrician? <laughs> I mean, we're like, what? We're in the middle of nowhere. We gotta get going. And <laughs> you can't offload fast enough. Your guys are all busting ass. I have my guys going. over there. Yeah, yeah. And then one time it's somewhere else, and one time you'll wait five days. That's just Russia time. That's the way it went. So, yeah, well, offloads were always something different. You could wait up to five days to offload. How long did you do that? It was a hundred and fifty-five day trip. We never touched shore. Wow. Yeah. Your crew was ready to get home. Yeah. They took it well when we resupplied. Because without your processors, you aren't going to do anything. We had 18 processors. They're making the least amount of money. You have your deckhands. Crew share ended up being over 100K for a deckhand. So they're all kind of like, deckhands know, seeing all this king crab just naturally, you know. But I had a meeting with them, and um, I told the guys, you know, this is what we need to do. And this is in the early 90s. 90, it was before the USSR broke apart. The ruble was still 125 to a dollar. It wasn't in free fall. The country was about to erupt, and the ruble was about to fall. But so yeah, there was 90. some trading going on, some blue jeans for vodka. Because there had to have been. Because I was, out, at that time, I was, uh, I was you on You can't the, drink on a trident boat. It wasn't. This isn't. <laughs> That's a whole other story. Because we interviewed the scientists and were told to bring over a case of booze of what each scientist wanted. This is this is way back when. Mm -hmm. You know, I remember uh, being on the the uh, Lafayette, and uh, we're now. I think it was Pribilof at that time, and uh, trading over to the Japanese trampers, and they wanted blue jeans or or uh, fish to dry out, right, and mm -hmm. hang on their racks, and they'd give us liquor. So at that time, don't tell me it wasn't going on. We didn't meet up with any guys anything to trade. These guys on that first tramp I'm telling you about, the skipper was really impressed to see this American rig. I mean, we they're, they're all rusty. They they kind of, I didn't know much about maybe Russia, but they said the farther you are from Moscow, the more removed and poorer things get. 
to get parts or anything. So here we are way away from Moscow and most of the boats, I mean, I used to joke that if we want to go steal a crab, let's just paint something with rust streaks. It barely looks like it can run. We can go over there and pull gear for 10 days and come back because that's what their boats look like. So here's this tramper that, and the captain invited me over for coffee and it was a big deal. He wanted to have beer. It's 10 in the morning. I'm like, no, no, we just got off loads. And he went to get me coffee. And he was really proud of this. I mean, th back then, Seattle's starting to boom about coffee, right? So he, we're in his cabin, big cabin. I think it's just me. Maybe the mate's with me. And he gets a key out to unlock his locker and pull out freeze-dried Nescafe crystal coffees. <laughs> and he's like, this is for his special guests. And, I, uh, you know, I'm not about to... Disrespect them, yeah. But I'll tell you what; those things pack some caffeine. Who drinks that <laughs> crap, right? I decided I should probably get that on the boat because I left there just wired after two cups of that. But that he brought out the good stuff for me. It was Nescafe, American Nescafe, freeze dried coffee. Nice. He, he was a neat guy, though. He was. It, the generations didn't add up. He was thirty-four and a grandfather type thing. I was like, what? You know, kind of talked a lot. He could speak really good English. It was interesting. Very cool. Yeah. So just the one long trip over there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Come back and we did a couple million pounds. It went well, and uh, off different various offloads. We offloaded to a Maru once, and just to just to make it happen, the big Maru with sometimes they had Greek crew. Um, Different flag vessel, different flag captain. So we tie up. We just want to get our crab off. I got a lot of people, you know, and the guy's like, well, you don't know how we're going to get this. You can tie up here. We got to put it there. And so we came up with, it's a long story. It's kind of a, what do they call it, a MacGyver? What's that thing they call when the ball does this and trickles and tips those oh, machines? Yeah, you you know, know what I mean? Yeah, I know so what you mean. So we ended up putting the crab here. Had a winch set up on the maru to pull the pallet up, and guys would walk it up 50 feet. And other ones would, and we got all our labor. At the end, the pilot drove, made, he watched this, and I, they must have impressed him. We got this crab offloaded, and the pilot made up this certificate and had it worked out how many, I think it was pound miles. He worked out the math of how many pound miles of crab we put. And, <laughs> and they were just almost clapping that, because any other Russian would have pulled up and said, Well, what do we do? You're you going to get the crab off? Because I'm not. And we're American attitudes, like, hey, get it off because we gotta go again. We're not making any money. Let's get it off. We gotta go. <laughs> that was a neat, neat story. But yeah, um, and then yeah, worked with uh, that went really well. And Russia was a good thing. And, uh, worked out good with the company. And Chuck, probably the highlight of my career was uh, at the Trident Christmas party in Stouffer, Madison. I wasn't expecting this at all. I'd only been, I hadn't even cut my hair yet. I'd been home maybe a week. I got the hair down to here. And Chuck called me up after the prayer. Don, the cat mechanic guy, would give, sometimes give the prayer at the dinner. And then Chuck started talking about new ventures in Russia and called me up. And I'm like, what? And he was carrying on so much. I, I didn't want to take credit, so I called the engineer up, you know. It weren't for Paul James. Uh, out of the 155 days, we broke one hydraulic hose. That was the only breakdown. So I got Paul. I just wanted to spread, get the light off me, but he he must have stood up there with me for 40 minutes. I was just like, <laughs> I'm turning red inside. It was nice though. Yeah. I mean, I never had that much attention, especially from Chuck. But 
it was neat. He was real proud of the way the whole thing went. And I'll never forget that till the day I die. Yeah, interesting. Came back and did what? I went, well, <clears throat> I was on loan. He, the next year, American Seafoods had built the American Champion. Tell Roki decided he's going to show these crabbers how to crab. Because he made famous trawling so quickly. He, he had the Triumph, made $90 million the first year. Got the Empress and the Dynasty, made $270 million the second year. And so he decided he's going to... Sh he had, Shell actually said this, I'm going to show those boys in Ballard how to crab. Well, Shell had never crabbed. Show those boys in Ballard. How it's done. A Norwegian to Norwegian. Uh-huh. Gloves are off. He built a $30 million crabber, and he reinvented the coiler, which didn't work. He reinvented something else, which didn't work. But we chop them off, and then um, he needed a captain. I didn't even know who American Seafoods was. And Chuck, I guess they had dinner. You know, you don't know how the upper people It's do. all family. Yeah, right? and I never heard of it. So I guess uh, Shell had asked Chuck, and there's something else I'll never forget. Shell said, Chuck said that if anybody can run that boat, it's you. And I didn't want to run it because I had the Billiken and things were fine. Why would I want to take a new boat that's going to break down the middle of nowhere or whatever? Mm -hmm. And the more I said no, it's one thing I learned about Norwegian. The more I said no, the more money they threw at me to say yes. Right. I right. kept saying no. I'll, I'll watch your boat. Okay. M money talks. <laughs> yeah. You give me. You go ahead and pay me my daily. I'll come down and keep it on track. But I don't want to do it. And when I finally did, um, I was feeling pretty frisky and. Sitting in Baron's car, Baron Bodle, and he said, Well, what do you decide? Will you take it or not? And I'd been there a month doing things. I said, Okay, but you need to retro my pay to the day you called me in Cabo San Lucas. So they basically gave me a $30,000 signing bonus, and I took it. And I didn't come back, really. The idea was I'd come back, but I would have disrupted Bobby Sykes off. I kind of I kind of felt bad. Bobby, I had to come back just in time to take Opie's, and you know, like, I'm going to come back after something going so good and tell Bobby, hey, I'm back. Sorry, you got to take second seat. That was part of it. Plus, uh, this boat was so big with the tonnage, I could work my license up. from. I had a third then. I could get a second and a cheap mate. And, and we ended up traveling the world with that. The Billiken boat. was a licensed vessel, though. Wasn't it just not big enough license? It's just 1,600 ton. Right. And then for the upper licenses, like to run tanker, like a 1,000-foot craft. You need a third, second, a cheap mate. And so with this 2,600-ton trawler, I I could work my license up. And we ended up going to Africa, Antarctic, and fishing. And it just ended up, I didn't come back because I didn't want to screw with Bobby. Plus, I was 50-50, like, well, let's see what these guys are like. So it was interesting. Pretty cool experiences. Yeah, yeah. Didn't you have a pretty... I heard you had a pretty good fueling experience over there once. And you you want the African fuel story? I, I want the African the fuel story. The largest fuel spill in my life. But it might have been the largest one in the world. But Okay, no, I'm Joe Morris, not Joe Hazelwood. Not a bragging fisherman. It wasn't that big, but it was amazing. Because if it happened in Dutch, the cleanup at 40 an hour for any hick of jumping a skip, plus the fine probably would have been six to $800,000. So we're in Cape Town, South Africa. We were fishing uh, toothfish in the Antarctic, Chilean sea bass, which actually, we had a three-week trip, and out of four years of the champion's life was the only time it was profitable. <laughs> we did uh, $4 million of fish in three weeks. That's the only 
time you could say it was profitable for the quarter. So we had offloaded and uh, we're, we're fueling up and it's huge. We had to take a quarter million gallons of fuel would last us 40 days. We had a Warsla engine that burned 6,000 gallons a day. The fuel lines are an inch thick. So it's nighttime, it's kind of rainy. And uh, we're, I know we're fueling, but I got a chief. I have an assistant chief. I have a chief advisor, which means the Norwegians want one of their chiefs there. It's American flag, but maybe back home they think that Norwegian's chief, but he can't be legally. There's an oiler, a wiper, an electrician. I mean, I have a room with seven people <laughs> engineering at night in Cape Town, and no one's out yet. I mean, you, you, we go out a lot, but... Um, you know we're fueling so we're there and all of a sudden uh, I kind of smell some diesel I'm up in the wheelhouse and the windows are open and uh, uh, I kind of smell diesel I forget who sent the alarm off but <clears throat> I look up and this boat's 60 feet wide and in the bow let's say it's 60 feet from the house to the bow point of the bow it's house front uh, house forward factory trawler. Thing. How long was this boat? Just to... 210 feet. It was 2,600 ton. It was basically a factory trawler, but kind of different. It's a huge, it's the biggest boat I've ever run. So the freeing ports is what you call the metal above the deck that if a water splashes on the bow, the water... No, there's no hinge thing. No, oh. this is on the bow. And the bow's probably 30 feet above water. This thing's huge. But you've got the clearing port so when the big wave greeny hits it goes over well those are uh i would say they're 10 inches high and uh we used to four do everything five, in meters i say five feet long and 10 inches high and i look over <laughs> and there's uh, for the three of them three in a row we're talking 15 feet the oil is probably i'm, I'm trying not to exaggerate here i'm looking at it the oil's four feet high cascading over the bow. Four inches. Four inches for 15 feet. Claim a small river. Because we we had it. We took a quarter million. You do that with a six-inch camlock or something. I mean, it's a huge. lot of fuel. You, you don't want to take forever. The boat's designed to take a quarter million gallons of gallon fuel. So we're not taking three days to do it. So they were filling one tank at the time. So this is... I, I'm trying to think in my head how much oil... When they stopped, there was literally... 10 drums on the deck because it's the bow yeah, is that wide nice and yet it's been running i'm like oh and uh of course we have insurance or whatever it's a shame because it's a beautiful harbor cape town and uh so the chief advisor i'm sorry you norwegians aren't gonna like to hear this the chief advisor comes up with a five gallon bucket of soapy water which goes against everything you're told and trained and tested for with Coast Guard about oil spills, let alone that is a piss in a river that you're going <laughs> to... Five gallon bucket. <laughs> There's ten for... drums on the bow. What are you going to do with that? <laughs> he's just like, you know, he doesn't know. He probably doesn't know because he's been in the stern. He just heard, so he comes running up. And I'm just like, hey, put that away. I don't even want... If you're in America and you see soapy water... After a fuel spill, they're really gonna get mad. But this is Cape Town. That's, that's why you can't see Joy Soap. You yeah, yeah, you can't buy Joy that's Soap in cases. Had, that's know? what he had in it was Joy Soap. <laughs> so uh, it's nighttime, and then the licensed chiefs. These are mass maritime licensed chiefs, which are some of the most intelligent people for the fishing industry that can come out of an academy. You get a mate or a captain. It kind of. Uh, 
they've never docked a boat and all that but these guys they know theory of hydraulic pressure and they may have never been fishing and they got a problem with the boat they solve it it's amazing how smart they are so anyway the chief comes up and he's like oh jesus this could be my license and part of it is he wasn't supposed to fill that tank the company pressured him that was a water tank skip the water we need to be able to stay at sea five more days a year and fill that tank it had a paleo gauge which measures pressure no sight glass or anything you're taking a computerized reading of the pressure paleo measures pressure as you fill a fuel tank which is supposed to be water and so and on the bow so they didn't have obviously didn't have someone up there and the gauge stuck anyway i would guess yeah, I'm trying not to exaggerate. A lot. I'm you thinking by the time lot. I smelled it for crying out loud, if the gauge stuck and they're watching and they're taking a huge amount of time, I would, I would think four or five thousand gallons had cascaded off. Which the boat. in the states would be like Exxon. I'm like we'd be investigation and. Oh, the state, the, the America would make money on that. Yeah. What let alone, what, let what, alone the real reason you shouldn't do it. Give us the, the reason there. What what happened there? All right. So uh, the chief is. Think he's going to lose his license when they find out we can't put he really fought i didn't know this this happened internally and uh he had fought this and they pushed him to do it and he's worried he's going to lose his license because you can't put i said i said mark mike they won't even read a print we're in cape town south africa they aren't even going to be able to understand these drawings don't even worry about that you're i i'm just calming them down and i'm not i'm worried about the oil spill i i feel bad about it but I'm like, Mike, that's the least of our worries right now. So I make all the calls. You have all the calls, especially international. Who to call? Guy comes down. He's a South African. He's a white South African Dutch heritage. And he, he's got this big light, and he looks in the water. He goes, see those fish? I go, yeah. And I'm being really ready to be subservient. You know, this is like... Yeah, I got in trouble here, yeah. Well, it's American Seafoods, big company. I've got to do what I can to minimize the damage and liability here. And so I'm going to play by the rules or whatever it takes. And, uh, yeah, he's, he claims these little fish are eating the oil. That's how he knows there's a diesel spill. I go, oh, really? I'm like, this is the dumbest freaking thing I've ever <laughs> heard, but okay. And, uh, and so he got his light, but it's rainy and dark, so let alone smelling it, and he's on the wrong side of the boat. The boat, the oil spilled, let's say, towards sea, and he's on the dock. So the oil spilled the other way, and it's a little windy, and it's a huge harbor. Anyway, so I'm playing along. He comes aboard. And some fish tell him we spilled some oil, some little fish. So they all have briefcases, Russia, Africa, whatever. Any official comes aboard with a briefcase. It's mostly empty. And I did, wasn't even thinking this. I'm just worried about calming the chief down. We'll do. He says, you know, <clears throat> it's going to be pretty expensive to clean up. It's nighttime. They don't want to start till tomorrow. <laughs> I'm like, really? Okay. <laughs> you know, in Dutch, it's like call off the army, get a helicopter well, lighting the place up, and let's boom you. Before we go too far, I want to I want to be, I want to make it clear that you called in every number you needed to call. You oh, reported yeah. everything. You nothing nothing on the United States side was done wrong here. Or on American Seafood well, you're sides. Not, you're not in the United States. Well, no, you don't but have I'm, to worry I'm, about that. I'm just saying that uh, I'm trying to give a disclaimer for American Seafoods here that they were not oh, in the wrong so old here. Oh, this is so long ago. <laughs> don't worry about it. Oh, no, this is so long ago. But you did follow the chain of command. You followed what you're supposed to do. Oh, yeah. I called the agent who runs the boat and gives us our money and whatever. I called the... I didn't even let, I didn't even let him make any calls. I called the agent. I called 
the pollution guy, I, the oil response guy that you'd be reliable, responsible over here. Oh yeah, I made all three calls. I said, hey, we spilled oil, get down there. Hey, I didn't say a lot, I just said we spilled oil. So he comes aboard and goes, keeps sweating it out, and I'm just raging. It's going to be expensive, and we won't start till tomorrow? Yeah, yeah, he says it. I said, well, what do you mean expensive? And, of course, they speak in Rand. At the time, four and a half Rand was one dollar. And when we got there, money we thought money went a long way. If you're long enough, you think of four Rand as four dollars because a beer is 50 cents, a really nice beer. It was the economy at the time. They were paying 13% on the... Um, money market was paying 13 percent it was unheard of but their dollar rands in free fall anyway so he, i do the math real quick in my head you know uh it's going to be uh 2500 rand an hour i'm thinking 500 bucks an hour for a boat and crew i said you know what we really man this is a beautiful harbor you have i'm going to start blowing a little smoke i said i'll tell you what tomorrow why don't you line up two boats at least two if you have three get three Let's get two, as many boats as you have, let's get them on this, and let's get it cleaned up. And he liked that, I think. I'm just, I'm not talking crap here. This is what you do at Trident. You would say, come yeah, on. fix it. Yeah, fix hey, it. Yeah. we're responsible. We screwed up for a minute. Let's fix it. And I don't know what's going to, anyway, I'm just riding the chair. So as he leaves, I go, you know, uh, we got. you want some jackets? Because we're painted orange. You had to be painted orange to work in the Antarctic. That was a requirement of the Camelar. You're part of the Antarctic Camelar The boat was orange? Yeah, you had to be painted orange to fish in the Antarctic. There are 22 countries who are part of the uh, agreement on how we handle Antarctic. They all have to, they basically are a board, and nobody gets a fish down there legally unless they all agree. And being orange meant they could see you by satellite, I think, and stuff, see where you were. So, uh, anyway, I'm, I'm dragging on with this, but so by the time he leaves, I. He'd, everybody loves Marlboro, whether in Russia or whatever. So I, I said, I took him down to our store and just me and him. I said, you want, you know, you want you wear one of our jackets? I gave him a few jackets, what he could carry in the arm. Do you smoke? Yeah, I do. And I just kept handing him Marlboros till he wouldn't take them into his briefcase. And I thought, well, that's just gonna help. But tomorrow, let's get ready for tomorrow, because man, S is gonna hit the fan. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I never saw him again. <laughs> that was it. Never heard it. The wind blew, and it was rainy, which helps. I've had, well, I don't see that. I've had a few oil spills in the wrong place, and this thing drifted off towards someone else, and no one cared, and he got his cigarettes. So that huge oil spill cost me, didn't cost me, it cost American Seafoods maybe 200 bucks. And me shining him on. But yeah, right. I'll never forget that story either, though. <laughs> So all these years at sea, now you're back at Trident at this point, but uh, for six months now. Yep, long time, long time. Full circle, full circle. Uh, but you ever been scared out there? I mean, what's your, what's the what's the one, got me moment? You mean fear, fear? Yeah, fear yeah. for my life. Yeah, sure. Whether you're on deck or whether you're in the wheelhouse or wherever you were at, that one time that really got you. I don't think ever. I fear for more for my crew, but no. I, with the time I should have been fearful but didn't know any better was when I started on the Billiken, 78. I, other guys will know this. 70, the worst storms I've ever been in are the Bering Sea in November. I, people talk about icing in January. 
it's a trend. Peggy Dyson can tell you. November, Bering Sea. Peggy Dyson being the weather the gal. The Kodiak the gal. The gal who knew everything about. Everyone knows Peggy. The, yeah, about the Barons and the worst. The Black Friday was in November, when, and then the, before that in '79, we're on the Billiken. We had a jog for two days, and literally, literally sixty foot seas. Not every one of them, but the one was sixty. And uh, we were young, and uh, I was still a processor, and we were glad Jim Hilt would let us. No, couldn't have been Hilt then. Might have been Doug Barber. Hilt wasn't there till later. It was probably Doug Barber would let ten of us or more, as long as we didn't steam up the windows, watch them jog. Because all you could do is two knots, and you're just going up a wave and down a wave. And at 60 feet, the crests are so far apart that you could probably put su two super tankers between them. So it's not, as the waves get bigger, it's displacing more water. So you go up a mountain, then you go down. And you go up one, and I probably didn't know enough as a, 19 year old to know how serious that was. I was on the Billiken and in hindsight that thing's a BMW. It's made for that stuff. And that went she, on for a day and a half. She's still a beautiful boat. Yeah. It drives like a BMW. It is the, the one crabber that, let's say you forget, you're talking on the radio or you're something it will recover from a mistake to get the next spot like any no other boat I've driven. It has a keel it has power and it will just it's like driving a BMW it really is for a 135 foot boat so that's probably when I should have been scared and I wasn't and I would think I'm trying to think of what fear has happened but I probably had more fear about mechanical failure not doing the job than fear for my life other than dreams I, the recurring dream, boat dreams the boat only dreams. dream that's really shaken me I've never watched what's that movie where the the storms collided on the East Coast. Perfect storm. I have never watched that stupid friggin'. Uh, you should. It's a great it's, movie. No, it. Oh, it's a I, great movie. I read the book, and the movie with him. Oh no, the book is great. The movie, I uh, unfortunately, I've seen clips as the crew watches it. But that impending wave, as the boat's gonna topple over, I had more dreams about a wave either hit me on the starboard or port ass and rolling me over or front, and I wake up because you have no control then if you ever hit a wave like that. But that's all. the only fear about... Do you have those where you're on the boat? Because no. I've had a lot of boat dreams. Well, because you don't sleep on the water, you sleep differently. Yeah. You will dream more on the water. Yeah. But no, I've had those. That's the only thing that scared me. I'll wake up and go, Jesus Christ. With no control. Not enough power. You know, but I literally, I'll be honest with you, I, I remember one time... Do we have time for a story? Yeah. So I'm on the Aquila, Kale Garcia's boat, and it's, it's, I'd made this dash effort to move way up Zemchug. I need to find some crab, and, and I'd done a thing that ended up working out. No one's around. I'm done by myself, and I, I, I kind of found something, but moved, and I consulted my gear, qu my gear quickly, and I'm just going to hit this small spot. I mean, this thing, Vic Scheibert, who, set north and south in the old days would never clutter all your spot stuff in one spot there's no one around and I remember one of the most harrowing days of pulling gear with a mud boat it was blowing I'm trying I'm trying to be realistic here it really was blowing it, it crept up on us from 60 and got to be in 70 knots and a 
and uh, uh, the West Point guy, Jensen, calls me. He says, what are you doing, yo-yo? I go, what do you mean, what am I doing? And to come to find out, yo-yo? Yeah, yeah. He New was, nickname for Joe, yo-yo. No, Norwegian nickname. <laughs> um, and he was, they're all anchored up at, but the Pribs, oh, shitty out, we're anchored up. And uh, maybe half the fleet was. I go, really? I hadn't been paying attention because the weather's so bad that I am doing what I can for the crew. My gear's right there. I don't have to go anywhere. And I will actually jog over to give them a 20-minute break while I do something a little different to make sure they don't get splashed on. A mud boat can be horrible. You know, if you watch Deadliest Catch, you can wipe out your crew in a minute. I could have, but that's not the point. And by the time he tells me this, I go, what? He goes, yeah, it's nasty out. And I'd been white-knuckling it all day, worried about my crew, and just limping along, still crabbing. I had a 90,000-pound day of Opie's while they're anchored. And by the end of the day, it's blowing 80. I go, oh, yeah, shitty out. But <laughs> I was tunnel-visioned into just watching my crew and and limping along. And I I wouldn't even drive the next string directly because it would be too nasty. I would give them a break while I kind of did this. And then I just had this, God, you know, you had to get it. And that was a good day. I made 90,000 pounds of crab and they're anchored up. <laughs> and I go, well, Jens. Your crew's on the deck Jens going, Fjortoff. holy shit. Jens, Fjortoff, Jens Fjortoff of the West Point. People know that. He called me up just to say, what are you doing? I go, well, I'm fishing. What are you doing? Are you kidding? It's like, well, I had a mud boat, 165 foot mud boat. That was a good day. Yeah, we made some money, and it was nasty. But until he said that, I didn't realize. Oh yeah, I'm so busy. It's building all day, but I'm so busy making sure the crew's okay. It was so a good day. You, uh, we're yeah, we're pushing time here, but you've been mentioning Trident a lot. You're like like we're we're focused on Trident at this point, even though uh, you've had a lot bigger career than that. Uh, but you've mentioned Vic several times. <laughs> And we're not going to get him on here. He's probably never going to sit down and record. Oh, maybe in five or ten years. Yeah, when he retires. Yeah. But until then, he's going to be closed-lipped. So give us a good Vic story. Maybe your favorite Vic story. <laughs> I was going to save this for Blake. Oh, uh, let me think. I was going to give some Blake some one-liners because they'll sit around and shoot the bull up in Bristol Bay. And Blake just told me this. I never really knew Blake till two weeks ago because he did herring. Smart and, young man. Yeah, Smart and, young and Katie. Well, I called her Katie Kane. She's really Katie Nifong. Nifong. And her and I, she was, we go way back. You know she, we were parallel. You know, she is a full, like she can run any boat. She's a master she's unlimited. Master she unlimited. She has to be by now because yeah. she was full. She license. can run any boat. Her and I were kids. Were we were you know, and so uh, I I and uh, Jake was Katie Nifong. I go, who the hell's Nifong? But there's only one Katie, and it took me a while to marry Katie. Yeah, Katie. she married Philip a while back, and yeah, yeah. She, Katie, you, you said you'd come up to Seattle to have coffee. Did you you know that's north? If you get put it in your GPS, Katie, you just have to go north for Tacoma a little while. It's been eight weeks and you haven't been <laughs> up here, but I guess I see where that rates. Um, a funny The Vic story. Give me the <sighs> Vic story. Oh yeah, Jesus. He's an intimidating man. Yeah, unless you're with him in the early days. Um he used to wall. They used to, him and John Marshall would wrestle like two walruses in the wheelhouse. Sometimes, John was a deck boss, and Vic would call him Eddie, like Eddie from Leave It to Beaver, and that would just start it. They didn't mean it, but they were like, "All right, who's really bigger?" And Vic was, 
I mean, if you see the some picture in the office from 30 years ago, that you didn't. He's still a big. I man. can tell you a quick story about Vic. One time we used to say "got a dime," which meant call someone who gives a shit. And I was a young punky guy on deck, and I'm just coiling and Marshall. That was the expression. And Vic comes out. He's in charge of production. He says, "You know what? There's too much crab. Too much small crab coming down the line." And uh, we're like, "What are you talking about?" Vic, you know, they had crab that threw on the belt and crab that went in the tank. <laughs> you know, and he's like, sitting there, I'm coiling. I'm bent over. And you hand coiled. No, guys, mind you, he's standing up coiling and, and right now. I'm, uh, you, he told us, we're not getting you a coiler. It's too slow. Guys, just keep hand coiling. So Vic's over my left shoulder and tell, bitching about this. We're working our ass off. I'm like, really? You're just in charge of putting some crab in the case and driving the boat six hours a night? My arms are sore. I'm a punky kid. I'm a 165-pound out of high school, punky kid. I'm quoting, and I go, got a dime? And he comes to my face, and he is so mad, and he and I were friends. I mean, we all like, and he is slobbering, and I just close my eyes, and I realize he is about to put his fist in the top of my head, and I'm not going to wake up for five minutes. I know it. I have stuck my foot in my mouth. Now, Marshall is kind of glad I said it, because there's this constant rub, but he and Marshall are more equal, so I'm just... You're Marshall taught kid, me right? my stuff. Right. And I go, got a diamond. Oh, that's the <laughs> dumbest thing I ever said. And he's just spraying spittle on my face. And I'm just waiting to black out. And he just, <laughs> to black. Oh, yeah. And I'm coiling a pot. <laughs> and he never hit me. And, but he didn't talk to me for a week. And I didn't blame him. And after about, we're on the same boat. And we don't make eye contact. And I'm just kind of hanging my head like, yeah, what a punk. And I had a mouth. I still have a mouth. But after about eight days, we started talking a little bit. That's a, that's probably a good big story right that's there. Great. Let alone the mechanical pencil. I'll save that one for Blake. Mechanical pencil? You want to know about mechanical pencil? Well, we're talking. Oh, this is funny, too. So this is a threesome going on. Well, if I'm lucky enough to call me part of the threesome. There's really a twosome. It's Vic Scheibert as the mate on the Billiken. He came back from the galaxy. Bill Howell wanted him back for production. I don't know if Vic had been with Trident before, but um, my second year, Vic was going to be the mate in charge of production, and Bill Howell got him back over there, and um, I think for somehow he knew John Marshall. John Marshall was a deck boss, taught me everything. I know. We called him Pluto. He had a dark beard, husky guy, good-natured East Coaster. So um, those two had a real rapport, and uh, so one day, it's a nice sunny day, and he'll I don't know how to say this right. In his early years, I've never seen a deckhand do what Hilt can do. Hilt was the ever-ready bunny. They called him Kuda because he'd jack his jaw around. He still does it now and goes like this while he talks. He could be on deck and I'll fish you at, on 72 hours and run circles around you. He's a machine. Oh, Jim, Jim Hilt. Jim Hilt. He's a machine. So this is the days when he was the deck boss. He is a goddamn machine. Try to keep up with that. Forget it. I've never seen anything like it. So then he'll comes to the house a little later. There's a funny thing about your logbook. And you always had to sharpen your pencil. I'm like, I think I was the first one to use pen. Maybe Vic used a pen finally. But I'm like, God damn it. Just scratch it out. Let's. Who needs to sharpen a pencil? But this is the way things are going. And so Hilt figures out mechanical pencil. He has one of them. And so it's a sunny day. And for some reason... You know, I don't know why we aren't in bed with an hour run, but we're up in the wheelhouse, and Vic's the mate, 
he gets full gear at night and Hilt's taking a nap during the day and we all knew that Hilt was so proud of his mechanical pencil. All you do is hit the end and you don't have to sharpen it. Oh, it's the greatest <laughs> thing since sliced bread. Right. And so uh, I, I think the way it derived is uh, maybe Shives need, we call him Shives, he needed to go to the head and we're up there so Marshall sits there and the window's down. It's a sunny day. And Marshall's got the pencil in his fingers. And he looks at... And Chibes comes up. He goes, I don't think... And he fakes like he's going to throw it out the window. I don't think this pen's anything special. And Chibes just looks at him like, Don't you fucking do that. And, and Marshall just gets this grin and goes, Whoop! And throws the pencil out the window. And it just sounds tiny. But Moe Fickles comes in glue because he's on watch. Where's the fucking pencil? He's the mate and the captain's pen pencil's out the well, window. Well, he doesn't know it yet. But Chibes knows. This stoop. This is how neurotic he was. He's a great skipper. He caught us crap. But he was not anything for personality. That was his downfall. If you want to lead people, you better have some empathy. You better gather them in you better be a cheerleader when you need you better no back in those days hey you're either doing it or you don't fuck you, you, you just go you're away. on or off yeah you're i'm doing my job just do yours i don't care about your life yeah. and you can't do that I don't if care you about really want to be got, i don't care what yeah if you want to be successful you gotta pull people along and they'll do more for you but he was the opposite of that he needed some training on that so it's just so funny. Vic could not believe he was really going to throw it over. And the stupid grin on Marshall's face as he was flicked it overboard. <laughs> we heard for the next 10 days on the loud hailer. You know what my pencil is? Because for all you know it, <laughs> you know, there's no carpet up there. <laughs> yeah, there's no carpet up there. He is going nuts looking for this mechanical. He only has one. What idiot would get one? <laughs> not idiot. He's socially... Nowadays, you get them in 15 packs, right? But back then, it was... So, he wants to know where his pencil is. And you know he hit Shibes. For the, for you, the next you, 10 days. Oh, no. You, well, you know, it decreased over 10. But in the beginning, he he relieved Shibes. He's probably not that groggy. And probably within 20 minutes, he goes, Hey, where's my pencil? Shibes had to go... What pencil or whatever, you know? <laughs> and then Shibes is sweating it out because the goddamn pencil. So, you know, you know, Jim's retired now. Yeah. He's probably listening to this. No, that's all right. Jim, that's where your pencil went. <laughs> I don't, man, no, am I just telling my wife that we're going to do this podcast and maybe I should tell a pencil story. And she says, did anybody ever tell him? We go, no, no. <laughs> even no. Uh, even nine days later, I can't believe I can't find my pencil on the loud hailer. <laughs> like, we care about what's going on up there. We're busting our ass, and you're worried about a pencil? <laughs> it happens. Those are two good big stories right there. We, we are definitely, definitely right, out of time, right. Joe. Uh, any, any last words before we cash out here? I'll tell you, I came back to Trident six months ago. I've been trying for four years. I caught my first non-lease crab last opies. These guys who are making you fish all lease, what the hell happened? We have sold the resource. It's no longer, this is a private fishery now. It is, it's disgusting. I'm glad I'm 57 and don't have to live through it anymore. And I'm glad to be a Trident who lets me catch some non-lease crab. I, I swore before I die, I don't care if I'm making less money, I need to catch some true crab. Some and, free crab. And Trident has taken care of their people really have their skippers and i'm glad this is a lot of my last job i'm done after this so 
I'm glad to be back here. I really am. I don't want to sound so company. Well, it's not a, it's not a, this isn't a tried, tried it podcast, right? <laughs> no, <not> I just, <laughs> I threw my, I came back around and realized Chuck is a fisherman and he takes care of the fishermen. He's always been a fisherman. Yeah. But uh, with that, guys, we'll end with uh, buy wild Alaska seafood, wild caught Alaska seafood, uh, wild pollock, especially. Sustainable. Well, it's, it is actually the most sustainable fishery in the world. It's managed um, correctly, it, I believe. You know, My dad's I, I, a biologist. You know, uh, crab, we thought we caught it early enough, and now quotas are pretty low, right? Which, it's but, cyclical. But we're, we're bringing it back. We're bringing it back. We aren't but, responsible for that. It's cyclical. We're just trimming off the top. But Pollock, though, is definitely very well managed. Because by the time that we discovered the species, meaning actually tried it, not to blow their horn but discovered it really started fishing it big time before after the joint ventures yeah right um really brought it into the american mainstream but it is so sustainable because at that point it was already okay how do we how do we control this how do we not overfish it so they're managing it very well they being alaska fishing game uh, managing it very well the feds i think yeah yeah so well, we'll just and eight it. cents a pound. I I can eat a burger of it. I don't know. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's gonna feed the world. That's what fishermen should do. Feed uh, the world. All right, guys. Well, thanks for tuning in to another episode of uh, Galley Stories. Uh, I am your host, Mark Kaler, and we will see you next time. It only took him six weeks to get me to do this. I'm glad I did it. <laughs> <laughs>